Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. I'm John Lancaster. As always, I'm joined here by Matt McKenna and a very, very exciting guest. Matt, how is everything over there? I'm great. Uh, our third guest this week. And yeah, once again, we're very excited for this guest because this guest is a personal friend of mine. I'm going to introduce Makasi Motema. He's a Marxist-Leninist activist and writer in the New York City area. You can find his work at Workers World. And uh, yeah, Mikasi is one of my oldest friends. We've known each other since uh, I think I was 18 and he was 19. We've been roommates in the past. I, he's listened to my rants. I've listened to many of his. So I'm excited to get him and recorded on the podcast so you know so the fbi and ca can track us down and have some evidence one day yeah very excited well first of all i i would want you know before we get to that that label of marxist leninist and we'll talk about what that means particularly we always like to start with kind of how our guests got to where they are politically and kind of got involved in the work that they do and so we wanted to ask you first like how did you become politicized in, in what influenced you on your journey to becoming a, a Marxist-Leninist? Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Um, honestly, that's the hardest question. Uh, you know, I, honestly, as a person of color, it, it's hard to not be politicized in this country. Um, you know, I mean, I remember as a kid uh, just having sort of political conversations, learning about this or that historical figure being, you know, having a history of racism and stuff like that. And it, and it changes the lens that you, you view things. Um, but I would say that, uh, you know, the Iraq war was the first real political engagement. Uh, it was a protest against the Iraq war. That would be my, the first time I've ever protested anything. Um, and it, you know, the, the entire rollout with the, with the way that the Bush administration had pushed their lies and all that, um, that that was probably the beginning of me as a as a political person, you know. And I was in college at that time, so it was kind of uh, perfect there. Right, and I of course remember that well uh, as well. John's a little younger than us, so he he was a, a small child when the Iraq War broke out. I was, but, uh, yeah. Of course, I think that's true for a lot of people of our you know mid thirties age. Not to give away your age, but um, a lot of people were politicized by the Bush administration and especially the Iraq war and subsequent surveillance state. But correct me if I'm wrong, Mikasi, but back then you certainly would have not called yourself a Mar- Marxist Leninist. Uh, so, I mean, first, what would you have called yourself in like, I don't know, 2003 through 2006 or seven. And then how did you end up in it at the point where you are now, where you call yourself a Marxist Leninist. And, and then we can talk about what that actually means uh, to be a Marxist Leninist. Yeah. So it's a gradual process. I think of, um, you know, if I go back, you asked about when the Iraq war happened, but if I go back to when I was a teenager, I probably would say that I was a Democrat. Um, but you, when you get politically engaged as a person with a left-leaning um personality, I guess you could say, uh, you start to see first that the Democrats don't have your interests in mind. Um, and then you look at maybe, maybe you look at third parties. I remember Ralph Nader was someone who I thought was, um, 
I thought he was trying to do some really good things. And, and I was kind of inspired by him at that point in time. But then it becomes clear that our electoral system is designed in a way where a person like Nieder can't possibly break in. Um, and so I think after that, you know, I identified as social Democrat. And then it was really more through reading and um, and also the Black Lives Matter movement coming into contact with a lot of people who uh, identify as Marxist Leninists. Um, that was kind of a thing. But, you know, like I said, uh, I'm a black person and my family is from Puerto Rico. So I have this background of anti-imperialism. When, when I look at someone, I mean, I, I'm talking about going back to when I was 16 years old. When I look at someone as Fidel Castro, someone like Fidel Castro, it's hard for me to look at him as a villain the way our media does. Because I look at him, it's like, you know, he's from Cuba. It's a country that, you know, has a huge black population, was was dominated by the U.S. in much in a very similar way that Puerto Rico was. Um, and so I just can't take the same perspective. And so it's sort of like um, I think to a certain extent that was a Marxist Leninist waiting to hatch for a long time because there's no the United States has no place for colonized people uh, to fit into the the mainstream political trend. Right. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned Ralph Nader. I, I, I feel like that's true of a lot of third party candidates. Like they really do have, you know, great ideas. Ralph Nader is seems like a pretty selfless person. I don't know him personally, but, you know, we can credit him with seatbelts and a lot of con- consumer protections. But I, I think you're absolutely right. The the system is totally designed to keep people like Ralph Nader, Jill Stein, Howie Hawkins, I think was the Green Party candidate this year. Uh, out of the the political competition and and of course out of the political debate and I, I mean that both the literal debate stage but also the spectrum of conversation uh, and then John I know you had yeah a question. I think I think it's just really important you know early on in the podcast because you know you I think the majority I don't know about the majority but many Americans hear Marxist and immediately think of a particular thing. Um, it's almost like the boogeyman of, of modern politics when politicians use and they throw around, you know, radical Marxists or whatever. So I think it's really important, especially early, early on in this podcast, to kind of define like what exactly is Marxist Leninism um, and how does that kind of differ or align with, you know, things that we hear like socialism or communism and those labels. So like, what is the kind of philosophy and underpinnings of Marxist Leninism? Well, first of all, I guess I have to clarify. Socialism is not when the government does stuff. <laughs> That's kind of a meme going around. And I think that uh, those kind of ideas are sort of what differentiates social Democrats or democratic socialists from Marxist Leninists. But um, the and I, I'll probably do a bad job of explaining this, but Marxism itself is about specifically what we call the means of production. And that's the natural resources, the factories, the the offices, everything that's required um, to produce something in, in our economy, all the all the material that's required. Um, Marxists point out that the means of production are owned by a very small group of people. They're owned by capitalists, and because capitalists own the means of production, they can force workers to work at incredibly low wages. And even though workers are producing a tremendous amount of value, um, the capitalists are able to steal most of it. They call it profit. I mean, it's surplus value and they take it. And so what Marxism says is the workers should own the means of production. Um, 
that's the fundamental part. And where Leninism comes in, I think, is primarily that Lenin felt that you need a party, a political party that can really organize the working class to take those me- the means of production. Um, and that kind of brings you to the second aspect where we differ with someone like Bernie Sanders, that um, the capitalist class will never allow you to vote away their control of private property. And again, I'm talking about the means of production. I'm not talking about your tooth, your toothbrush or something like that. Um, that's, that's personal property. People are, that, that's not, that's not the issue, but the idea that, um, you know, someone can buy a 15 story building and then charge people to live there um, and, and extract rent from them. That is something that, you know, we don't want to exist in a socialist society. But if you bring that to any kind of a parliament or legislator, um, there, it's it's a non-starter. It's never going to happen. Um, and historically, we've seen places like in Chile with Salvador Allende where people try to go the electoral route. Um, they do a great job of campaigning and, and organizing and they win elections and then they're violently, violently suppressed by oftentimes the United States, but also right wing forces within their own country. Um, this idea of of democracy where we all kind of get together and we hash out ideas and whatever the majority says um, goes that's something that capitalists only tolerate when the when their um, profits are not threatened, uh, and that kind of shows you, you. You all you have to do is look at what happened on Wednesday. Um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are sort of wondering, you know, are sort of think, thinking about nothing else right now. Um, the right wing uh, does not care about democracy. They don't care about any of the things that they profess to care about. As soon as they feel threatened. Um, they immediately resort to violence. Right. And it's funny you mentioned the example of voting your way into voting our way towards socialism or voting our way toward having workers control the means of production and how that's just never going to happen. It reminded me of a story I've told on the podcast before that, but um, this story exists over and over again. But a, a classic example is Che Guevara was in. Guatemala when the United States overthrew the government of Guatemala. And, uh, you know, this was Jacobo Arbenz and he, uh, he was not a communist. He was, I I don't think he'd even call himself a socialist, but, you know, he was, you know, he got voted into power. He did not prepare himself. He was not willing to use force. Uh, and subsequently he was pretty easily overthrown by U.S. backed uh, back forces within Guatemala who were willing to use violence, who were willing to execute people, uh, entire lists of people that the United States had provided to them. And, and then, uh, of course, uh, Guevara brought that lesson to Cuba when he helped Castro with the Cuban Revolution. And the lesson learned was you have to run a tight ship. You have to be prepared to arm yourself and fight if necessary and kill if necessary. And, you know, that it seems like he understood it better than a lot of the people who think that we can vote ourselves into uh, a better situation. But John, it looks like you are looking to ask a question. Yeah, I think. Um, so first of all, thank you for, for kind of um, parsing out exactly what you're talking about. And I think, I think um, listeners have a much clearer picture of what you're talking about when you're, when you're saying, you know, Mean, looking at owning the means of production and not you know personal property and things like that. Uh, but I do want to ask about um, 
you know, we introduced you as like the a writer for Workers World. I do want to ask you about your work there, what Workers World is, and what issues they focus on particularly. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about what Workers World even is? Yeah, so Workers World is a, a Marxist-Leninist party um, that's uh, sixty-two years old at this point. Um, Workers World, uh, as a Marxist-Leninist party. Uh, we we have the line that the the workers should own the means of production, um, and it's also very important for us to support the most oppressed. Um, at, the, at the end of the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx says, "Workers of the world uh, unite." Lenin added, "Workers and oppressed people of the world unite," and uh, because we're always trying to expand that circle um, with regards to Workers World. This is a party that has aggressively been um, including the most oppressed groups of people. So understanding the oppression that uh, black people in this country face, Workers World was one of the first Marxist-Leninist parties to show solidarity with the Black Panthers, when unfortunately a lot of Marxist-Leninists at that time were critical of them. Um, Workers World was one of the first parties to support the um, LGBTQ plus struggle after the Stonewall riots. And again, Workers World Party was criticized for that. Workers World Party was criticized for its feminist stances. But we've always been, um, we've always kind of considered it our mission to um, take on those struggles. Uh, Because the economic struggle is obviously... uh, it's what provides the energy for all this oppression. It's kind of the the backbone to it, but you can't just say, well, we'll solve first. We'll solve the economic problem. We'll, we'll seize the means of production. And then afterwards we'll sort out all this sort of, you know, tough stuff with, with racism and sexism. You have to do it at the same time. You have to, you have to be really principled about it. So that's, that's um, how, how, what we stand for. And that's actually how I, got involved in workers world because before I was a Marxist Leninist, I was in the black lives matter movement, probably starting late 2015. Um, and workers world was just at every single black lives matter demo I went to. So, it, you know, um, it's that kind of a principled stance. That's, that's what brought me in. Yeah. I like what you said about this inability to separate economics from oppression. And I mean, that could be racial oppression, uh, oppression of women. It could be oppression of LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, I think we're seeing the outgrowth of this lack of understanding when we, we see this like celebration of people of color or women being brought into what are capitalist and insti- imperialist institutions. So without the understanding that you just articulated, we can have people, and this is real, like people literally celebrating that, you know, four of the top 10 uh, weapons contractors have women's female CEOs, or that the, the fact that this is going to be the most diverse department of defense uh we uh, and the pentagon uh leadership that we've ever seen and so with without the understanding that you just articulated i think people really do fall for this uh, kind of uh corporate uh, diversity schemes when when in reality you need to start with the economics because they're directly connected and and before we move on to your article i do i do want to address that the fact that there's this kind of this meme, this belief that seems to get circulated by, I, I think it's mostly Democrats or centrist Democrats that, you know, Marxist Leninism, communism, socialism is, 
is for white people. It's like a, it's a college kid, a elite white kid thing. And, and I just, this, and there's so much evidence to counterbalance that, but there is this somehow myth that, uh, that left politics is this kind of like a hipster thing. And I, I was wondering if you could talk for just like briefly, like, why is that not true? Cause I think we all agree that it's not true. Um, and why are leftist politics so attractive to the historically marginalized? And of course I'm including people of color and, uh, and, of co- and what, whatever marginalized group we're talking about and why should it be attractive to marginalized groups? Well, so, I mean, first of all, Ho Chi Minh is not a white leftist, nor is Fidel Castro or Mao Zedong or Thomas Sankara. So, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't actually work. And the thing is, is that Marxism, Leninism as a, a revolutionary strategy tends to work better. At least history shows us right now that it tends to work better in the global south. Uh, so that kind of means that most of the successful Marxist Leninists in the world live in a global South country. Um, But uh, the thing is, is that Lenin took a very, very strong stand against imperialism. Um, And that is why people like Ho Chi Minh became Leninists. And that's what sort of connects it to um, the struggle of people of color all over the world. Uh, During world war one, there were a lot of, uh, Marxist, and some of them would fall into what we call today a social democrat camp. But um, at the time, who said, you know, we we want to we want the workers to gain the means of production, but we need to support our government when our government is at war. We need to defend our own country. So we have to understand that okay, we're in Germany, and we we have to support our government defending us against Russia or we're in Russia and, and vice versa. And Lenin said, absolutely not. I'm, I'm a Russian and I'm rooting for the Russian empire to lose and workers in Germany should be rooting for the, for the German empire to lose. And he called that revolutionary defeatism because ultimately what was happening was the ruling class, the capitalist class was sending workers to kill each other in mass in the millions. And so there's absolutely no reason he, he called it a betrayal to support imperialism because you're supporting the annihilation of your own class for the profit of others. Um, so, you know, that's the issue. There's also another thing that, uh, is referred to as the national question, but, and this is something that people don't know, especially about the USSR, but that um, ethnic groups within, um, within countries, you know, within Russia, especially during, during the time period of the Soviet union, uh, communists feel that they have the right to consider themselves a nationality and that their nationality should be um, respected. So in this old Soviet union constitution, you couldn't infringe on their right to speak their uh, native language or their religious practices and so forth. And um, Lenin mentioned that, you know, black people in the United States constitute an oppressed nation and that they have the right to self-determination, which is a huge revolutionary idea and has massive implications here. Um, So yeah, that that's, that's, that's really where it comes from. I don't, the white leftist thing, I just sort of don't get it. Yeah. And I think there's one other thing that kind of relates to this that I think like, I know I'm, I'm sure you've gotten this and it's a misguided kind of historical question, but I think we'd be remiss not to see your response to this type of question. 
But I'm sure you've received the kind of thing of like, you know, well, Marxist through history, if you look at the Soviet Union, you look at, um, you know, Marxist China, you look at the Khmer Rouge, and you see all of these, uh, you know, systems in which millions of people were killed. How do you respond to something? I'm sure you've heard something like that before. How do you respond to that kind of critique? Yeah, I mean, it's a constant thing. I mean, the Khmer Rouge, though, you know, was sponsored by the CIA. That That's a little bit of a different situation. It's not, uh, I think as a Marxist-Leninist, uh, I don't have to answer for the Khmer Rouge. That's somebody else's problem. But in terms of, um, in terms of Marxist-Leninist states, uh, you have to basically look at it in two ways. One is, um, what did those states do uh, to protect their revolution? And then what what were they accused of doing that really never happened? And this is a difficult thing because in our society, generally, if someone says that an atrocity has occurred, the idea of coming out and saying that's not true is kind of offensive because, you know, it's something that's done by fascists. But another thing that's done by fascists, particularly Nazi Germany, is to invent out of whole cloth uh atrocities and project atrocities. So a lot of there, there are a great many stories that originated in the German press in the 1930s um, about the Soviet union that were then laundered by right wing um, uh, newspaper editors uh, about the Soviet union. And so it's, it's a little bit bizarre now in the 21st century to sit and talk to someone and they sort of mention something that, uh, first showed up in the Nazi press and they and they're saying, can you answer for this uh, as to the Soviet Union? And I can say, well, absolutely, I can't. <laughs> it's it's an absurd sort of story. But the reality is is that um, the Soviet Union absolutely used force to defend its revolution. It absolutely did have um, incarceration. Uh, I think that um, when I, when people ask me about it. I, I usually say that the clearest and easiest to understand example is Cuba. Um, Cuba has suffered more terrorist attacks than any country in modern history. Um, there's another country that's 90 miles off their shore where the United it's the United States and they sponsor um, terrorist attacks, invasions, propaganda, they sanction the country. So if you come to me and you say, do I, do I think that Cuba is, has too much of a security state? Um, they don't, if you say, do, do you think that they um, don't allow enough freedom of speech? What I would say is uh, they're under constant attack and their government would collapse in an instant if they didn't have a really strong security state. Now, some people ideologically, they just can't agree with that. But the thing is, um, I mean, go back to the, so I'll return to the Soviet Union. The day the Soviet Union was declared, uh, 17 countries declared war on the Soviet Union. A lot of people don't know that the United States physically invaded Russia. <laughs> you know, um, when the entire world turns on you, you might get a little paranoid um, and you might, you might go over the top. So, um, it's not really for me to say, uh, specifically what should they have done, but it's very clear that they reacted to 
the outside forces of economic sabotage, terrorist attacks, and then outright the the hugest invasion. Um, you know, I think the Eastern Front, right, is like the biggest military operation, uh, mm-hmm. certainly of the 20th century. So um, that that would be my response. Right. And I also feel the same way that we, you know, we don't have to, it's not for us to decide what a nation under siege, whether we're talking about the USSR or Cuba, how they should respond to it. And, you know, 99% of the time, the person asking that question has absolutely no problem with the United States uh, developing this gigantic national security state uh, after September, a, a more developed national security state after September 11th that suppressed freedoms, uh, goes on a global killing spree because of a, an attack that killed 3,000 people. You know, as a reaction, we kill over a million people. Uh, it, it, you know, for an attack like September 11th, which, you know, tragic, but, you know, just imagine the United States had been invaded by 17 countries at, 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 from the beginning, from at, its, uh, at the United States independence. The very beginning of its independence, 17 countries invade. Imagine the United States was constantly being uh, – had propaganda from other countries spilling across the airways. Imagine the United States had constantly had powerful countries interfering in its elections, sponsoring terrorist groups within the country, sanctioning the United States so people were starving. It's so silly to think that the United States wouldn't react with an insane uh, level of security measures. And the other thing is when people say that, they never, ever keep in mind the crimes of capitalism, as if World War I wasn't a direct outgrowth of capitalism and a predictable outgrowth of industrial capitalism. You know, the, at the time, the, the highest death toll in world history for a war until the Second World War, which is a direct outgrowth of the First war, World War. And, you know, I, I included some stuff at the end that, that I definitely want to ask more about the, you know, how we should talk about thing uh, this the policies and uh development of political systems in countries outside of the united states in countries outside of the uh sphere of influence of the united states but let's hold off on that until the end because you wrote an article that we really want to discuss because you know it is extremely pertinent to the current situation so you wrote this article in workers world uh i was privileged to, to see it ahead of time I saw it in Google Docs form. I'm just, I'm not bragging or anything. But uh, so you wrote this article called, Is the United States Facing a Revolutionary Situation? So we'll get into some of the specifics, but can, can you give us an overview of what you were trying to get across in this article? You don't have to be too specific just yet because we'll get into it. But it sounds like big picture, you're trying to make the argument that the United States is ripe for revolution. So uh, broadly speaking, how is the United States in its current state ready for revolution you know, compared as compared to other historical revolutions, you talk about Cuban Revolution, the the Russian Revolution, the Haitian Revolution. Like, where are we right now, and why did, why are you making the claim that we are ready for some kind of revolution? Well, I started working on that article a couple of weeks ago, and when I did, I think it was still sort of controversial, even among the left. I think after Wednesday, it's a lot harder to find people who disagree with me. Um, but your phrase "ripe for revolution is is accurate. I'm not saying that a revolution is going to happen. Um, a revolutionary situation, and that's a term that I, I borrowed from Lenin, uh, is that the there's sort of an instability and uh, 
that what he calls the objective factors, you know, the, the conditions in a country are such that if, um, if a revolutionary party emerges and organizes the working class, uh, they have the potential to carry out a revolution. And I think that's where we're at. I don't think we're at the point where we have a revolutionary party that has organized the working class to carry out that revolution. That's really the next step after you've acknowledged we're at this stage. But um, and, and it was sort of a prompt to sort of let people on the left know that we really have to start pushing further and, and, and we really have to do more organizing work. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's about the, the, um, the conditions that the country faces. So specifically he just says three things and it's like um, the, it's, there's a, the, the, the masses have taken sort of an independent historical action. So if you look at all the protests that have gone on, the fact that people are out in the street, instead of sort of asking their legislators to do the right thing or waiting for the legislators to do the right thing, they just kind of go out in the street and try to make it happen on their own. Um, there's also um, a sharpening of suffering uh, or oppression amongst the people. And um, we've certainly seen that, especially during the COVID crisis, but really since 2008 with the economic crash. And then um, finally, there is the... Um, and I kind of listed these in her first order because it's the crisis in the ruling class. And I remember having a conversation with another um, Marxist Leninist before I wrote the article and they said, you know, but do you, I agree with points two and three, but do you really think that the ruling class is in a crisis where they can't rule? Um, and again, after Wednesday, I don't have to have that conversation with anybody. The ruling class is very clearly in a crisis. I mean, they're very clearly divided. You have um a fascist sort of Trump faction. You've got uh, a neoliberal faction uh, and, and they, and sort of like the traditional Republicans and they, none of them agree on what should be done. And none of them are even sure that they can maintain control of the government anymore. Um, so this is, this is the crisis. And so the question is what do, um, what does the working class do and what do revolutionaries do? Yeah. And uh, you, you break this article down nicely into different sections. So I, I think what we'll do is we'll just kind of go section by section. So you talk about the, your first section is the kind of the death of the old way. And, you, you know, the, the, the way that institutions of the state, institutions of that protect the bourgeoisie, the, the ruling class, are themselves in a crisis. So you talk about three in particular that I think are, I think we would all agree are institutions uh, that protect wealth, that protect capitalism. And uh, so let's let's go one by one. Like, why is the military in a crisis? And then we'll do police and border patrol. Uh, so what are your thoughts about that, of these institutions that protect wealth? And why are they in crisis? Well, I mean, that's kind of um, – it's an interesting thing if you follow um, – it just every once in a while in the press, they'll they'll have these stories of special forces operators are experiencing burnout or drone pilots are experiencing PTSD. Um, and I and I listed some of those articles in 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 my um, in my article. And but they're facing a recruitment crisis. Uh, recruitment is generally down in the military, and the constant imperialist wars. Um, it's hard to keep track of how many countries we've intervened, we're intervening in right now, but it, it wears away at, at the U S military. 
um, especially since we have a volunteer military and we don't have a draft, um, you can't fight that way indefinitely. Uh, and that's, and that's basically taking a toll. I mean, if you look back at the saber rattling against, um, Iran, uh, earlier in Trump's administration, um, it never really felt, at least to me, that there was a genuine chance that they could invade. Because if you look at how difficult it was for them to maintain control in Iraq, and they really didn't, um, how could they possibly go into a much larger country with a larger population, more difficult terrain? Um, and they, and they, and it was sort of clear. You could see from um, members of the military talking about it, and members of the administration even that it was just it was just not probable. They don't have the power to do that. And if you go back to the year 2000, um, the United States seems totally different. It seems um, all powerful that it can walk into any country and totally annihilate it. Um, and so that's a radical change that's happened over the last 20 years. Yeah, and I think what you just said, you know that they they have that fear in the back of their mind. They know that the populace and the military itself will likely not support another large-scale invasion. And I know that because Barack Obama specifically was an expert at making war antiseptic to the American population, uh, ex- reducing American casualties tremendously. You know, I mean, people say, well, he did the surge in Afghanistan. Some 2,000 Americans got killed. But, I mean, B- Bush was certainly responsible for a lot more than that. But you know, Obama found a way to keep the war state going, to keep the imperialism going and keep it quiet. But, you know, at some point, you know, we're going to have to understand that even the the more antiseptic forms of war for, for us, not for the people who are targeted, you know, drones, uh, high altitude bombing, uh, sanctions, proxy armies. At some point, people are going to figure out that these aren't uh, cost free versions of militarism either. Uh, so uh, I definitely think that's accurate that, you know, there's a realization that this uh, that the endless war state can, cannot proceed forever without with, without criticism and, and without obstacle. Yeah. And I think the other one of the other things that, you know, I want to talk about that kind of is um, that you kind of elaborate on as a result of what we've been discussing here is, is a current shift that's happening. You mentioned Someone actually we mentioned earlier, but you mentioned like the possibility of people like Bernie Sanders and um, AOC and how those, you know, candidates like that wouldn't be, po- you know, wouldn't be possible a couple of decades ago. And you also mentioned the shift where, uh, although kind of a co-opted thing, you talk about slogans like abolish the police being used and adapted to defund the police. So I want, can you speak a little bit to the shift that that's occurring and, and how that again kind of bolsters your argument that we are in a revolutionary situation. Yeah. So this is something that um, is definitely more nuanced. Um, it, it's harder to put your, your finger on than, than talking about military recruitment. But, you know, we mentioned earlier that I, you know, admired Ralph Nader when I was young. I remember during, I forget which presidential debate where Ralph Nader, obviously he wasn't allowed on the debate stage. He wasn't allowed in the auditorium where they had the debate, like he couldn't get in. And I think he had previously gotten tickets and for some reason they, they revoked it. Um, You couldn't get on the stage and say, yeah, everyone needs healthcare and the government should pay for it. 
which is a very which is not a socialist idea it's uh you know people in the uk have that people in france have that it's not it's not really asking for a whole lot but um you couldn't do that um and then all of a sudden bernie sanders gets on stage right and the reason why is because of as i mentioned the independent action of the masses things like occupy wall street which just really really um well it scared the capitalist ruling class and um and it changed the political discourse so all of a sudden uh things that couldn't be discussed publicly now had to be discussed publicly um the u.s talks a lot about how we have freedom of speech but all of our mass media is controlled by very few very small group of corporations and if you want to talk about an idea that hurts their profits, they're not going to let you on television. So we have a de facto censorship that I think actually works better than, um, than, than overt censorship. And, um, although we certainly have that as well. And, uh, that de facto censorship, it, it molds people's ideas because it tells them what is possible. They sort of see like, this is the extreme right. And this is the extreme left and nothing exists outside of that. Um, and those walls are breaking down now, um, you know, to a certain extent, unfortunately, with the rise of fascism. But it's it speaks to their inability to maintain control. Right. And, you know, not to be corny and quote Chomsky, I'm not going to quote him, but that that is basically the premise of manufactured consent. Manufacturing consent is that the, the whole debate traditionally exists within a spectrum of acceptable opinion. So. More recently, he would say something like, well, look, look at Barack Obama campaign. He's considered an anti-war candidate, but he never said he was anti-war. He was anti-dumb war. Pretty good impression there. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's, it's getting easier to do a Chomsky impression as he's slower (laughs) and slower. But I mean, but it's a really good point. It's like Obama wouldn't say that he was anti-war. He would say he was anti-dumb war. Right. He was, he was against the war in Iraq because it didn't work out. He's not against the imperial war in Afghanistan. Um, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, a, because I know we, we talked about two other you talked about two other institutions of the state that are protecting capital um, as briefly or as long as you want to go. Uh, you talk, can you uh, kind of sum up the crisis also within Border Patrol and and the police, uh, city police and, you know, uh, state police, you know, police, law enforcement across the country. Why are these institutions also in crisis? Well, so that's I mean, that's a really interesting thing, because I wouldn't have predicted this, um, but they're both having the same exact problem. And it's that um, a lot of people are asking to retire early and a lot of people just aren't interested in joining anymore. And it's because of the criticism they face. Um, you know, the first I have to say the border patrol, the border patrol did not become bad when Donald Trump was in office. Um, they have decades and decades and decades of, of a history of being really committing extremely gross human rights abuses. Um, and people who have studied the immigrant migrant struggle can, can kind of go into depth about that. But once Donald Trump came into office, um, the microscope was on them. And he emboldened them, as people are fond of saying. And, and so then people started looking at them and they were like, oh, my God, these people are really, really disgusting. Um, the same thing happened with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. People started looking at police departments and realizing they couldn't find a single police department that didn't have a scandal, that didn't have a massive problem with um, police brutality, that 
hadn't murdered an unarmed black person. Um, and the amount of outrage that built up, uh, and this is the part that I didn't predict is that it, they, they kind of crumpled underneath it. They, they, they're hurt by the fact that people are disgusted by them and they feel like, Oh no, people think we're the bad guys now. And it's like, well, you are, and you always have been. And I don't know why this is a revelation to you. Um, but you know, uh, I guess you, I guess you can't underestimate, um, morale. Um, and that's the term that they always use that their morale is really down and, um, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> yeah. I think this is another one of those things that you, John, we're going to have to do a podcast, you know, on January 20th of what we're going to miss and not miss about the Trump era. And I guess, one positive is that people are actually paying attention to, to things like border patrol and police, you know, like uh, Mikasa, you just said that people started paying attention to the abuses of the border patrol. Well, you know, the, the author Greg Grandin has this great book. It's a, uh, it's the end of the myth. It's all about the history of the U S border. And 100% of the time, the borders of the United States, not the border with Canada, but although some uh, in the early days, that was a place of violence. But 100% of the history of the United States, the borders of the United States have been locations of extreme violence. And it's true now. It didn't start with Donald Trump. All you need to do is look at uh, just Google Obama in, on immigration and, and immigration protests, and you'll find out that Obama was absolutely terrible on this stuff. Um, but uh, moving forward, uh, Mikasi, I, I do want to ask you about this next category that you talk about in the article, and that's the sharpening contradictions. Um, what does that mean about – we're seeing sharpening contradictions. Um, I assume you mean between different sectors of society, and you know, if you, if you want to elaborate, why does that lead us to a potential revolutionary situation? So in what, in what ways are we seeing these sharpening contradictions? Well, so, I mean, Marxists love to say contradictions, but it's just about opposing forces, as you said. Um, and the fundamental contradiction in a capitalist society is that um, a worker wants to have all the value of the, of, of the labor that – all the value that they produce with their labor, and a capitalist wants to keep it for themselves. So it's this constant contradiction, right? Um, you know, you make a product at your job, and – it gets sold and then someone else comes and skims off the top, um, skims a lot off the top. And, you know, capitalists actually have to continually um, push wages down um, because over time, you know, competition in the markets, profits kind of uh, profits tend to go down over time. So they can't just say like, uh, we're kind of charging, we're, we're paying people, minimum wage right now, but we can stick with that forever. It's like, no, they, they, they want to think of a way to cut your wages further. So this, this contradiction, it just gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. Um, it, so you look at what's happening right now um, with the COVID crisis, it just accelerated everything. Um, the, and, and corporations have absolutely no concern whatsoever um, you know, real estate corporations is a perfect example. Um, you know, they don't care that people don't have money. They're just, they just want more and they want more. Um, the, the contradiction between landlords and tenants is a, is a great example. Some people sort of say like, well, how come landlords don't say, um, don't join forces with their tenants and, um, 
criticize the banks and say, uh, you know, no one has the money, so we're not we're not paying the mortgage and they're not paying the rent. Um, but it just doesn't it doesn't work that way because the landlord knows that that um, you know that they're in a parasitical relationship with their tenants, um, and if if they don't take your money away, they have no money for themselves. So. Um, when you when you end up in a situation like we're in right now where the economy is well, well it was partially frozen and it still hasn't totally gone back to normal um all of those opposing forces just intensify yeah it was yeah. funny you mentioned the landlord thing and john i know you want to say something but I don't, I don't know if anyone caught in the cnn a few weeks ago they they literally did like a sob story for landlords they're like the the pandemic's been tough on landlords too or one group that's affected by the pandemic, no one's talking about landlords. <laughs> but it, it was not an onion art. Like it could have been an onion, <laughs> but it was fucking period. Uh, and uh, you know, I probably sent this to about twenty people, and some people were like, "Wait, I don't, I don't get it. They, they need to get paid too." It's like it's not a fucking job. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Ahead, no, I, I, I wanted to ask because you know, with all of this, you know, what we're seeing, and you mentioned kind of the tail end of that, the the economic crisis that we're seeing because of many factors, COVID just being one of them and the effect it's having on, on workers and, and just, you know, people in general. Um, I did want to get your take on kind of like why you think that, that given all of that, that this is a revolutionary situation. Um, whereas something like, you know, we had similar economic collapse um, and economic kind of disparities and in, inequities during the Gilded Age economic, uh, you know, the economy obviously collapsed during the Great Depression. We had the 2008 crash. Um, and yet, although we did see a lot of, you know, uh, protests, worker protests during many of those instances, we didn't see um, some type of revolution. So I am interested in why, you know, do you see the present as very different from these situations? Um, and, and how does like the present situation differ from from those economic collapses? Yeah, that's the critical question. And the thing is, um, I mean, it might surprise you, but I actually don't think it's that we're living in a period that's so unique. Um, And this is where it comes to, I had mentioned it before about, about organization, but it's what Lenin called the subjective factors. So if the objective factor is uh, how the economy is and what the, what the ruling class is, is going through, the subjective factor is the choices that revolutionaries make. Um, and you need a, a very disciplined, very, very competent revolutionary party to um, make a revolution happen. I forget exactly how Lenin phrased it, but he said that um, basically no matter how bad a crisis is, the ruling class will stabilize the situation if they're given enough time. Uh, they need to be pushed over. Uh, they don't collapse on their own. Um, the Great Depression uh, was a period of absolute terror for the capitalist ruling class. Um, and it's the reason why FDR is remembered fondly by uh, center-left Democrats, uh, because he was essentially trying to compromise his way out of a communist revolution. Um now, I, you know, I'm not an expert in terms of why revolutionary groups weren't able to succeed. There, there's a lot that goes into it, and every period is different. But um, for right now, um, the the question about whether or not the current capitalist order is going to survive is 
will a revolutionary party step forward and organize the working class uh, to seize the means of production? Um, I mean, in terms of 2008, I would actually argue that that was sort of the beginning of moving into the current revolutionary crisis. Because if you if you think about some of the other things we mentioned, right, like the Iraq war, that seed was planted earlier. Um, they haven't born, they didn't bear fruit until maybe the last five years. Um, so it's something that gradually develops. And it is also something, again, that, that will end. Eventually they'll stabilize it. And usually that happens with reaction. Um, you know, when Germany, after after World War One, they faced a revolutionary situation and it ended with the rise of the Nazis. So it's, when we talk about a revolutionary uh activists stepping forward um it's something that needs to be done and it's a serious serious thing it's not something that you can um sort of brush off or 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 think is is unimportant it's it's really life and death right and and thank you for mentioning the great depression uh mikasa and and john because um you know, there's this myth that FDR just did these amazing things. And, you know, it seems to be that people believe that he did it out of the goodness of his heart, but there were massive strikes all across this country. Uh, There really was a genuine fear of a communist revolution or some kind of left-wing revolution. And the the New Deal was a compromise. You know, a lot of people say the New Deal saved capitalism. It wasn't, you know, FDR, the son of privilege, one of the richest families in the country, was not looking for a left-wing revolution. (laughs) He was compromising to assure that, that the the structure of capitalism would stay untouched in this country. Uh, But something else I want to ask you about as we move on to your last category here, but before we we move on, it's just, you know, there's this kind of funny thing where, you you know, I think Rahm Emanuel, Obama's uh, advisor, once told him you can never let a good crisis go by. And I think he was was probably talking about the financial crisis. Uh, But it's almost like, you know, Littlefinger from Game of Thrones. What does he say? You know, uh, chaos is a ladder, right? And, um, you know, it's almost like the other side thinks that way, right? So it's like, when are leftists and organizers going to start seeing it, it the same way? Like, the the fascists are always taking advantage of crisis. When are we going to see it the other way that, you know, we can take advantage of a crisis? We can, we can use it as an opportunity to organize, to mobilize. And it sounds like that's some of your current frustrations with, with, the, the larger movement. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, though. So um, what the fundamental, or at least one of the fundamental um, contributions that Karl Marx made is that he explained the way capitalism worked as a system, and he separated it from the individual choices that people make. And he said that if you look at it as a system, the system itself is unsustainable. And now... Um, I think young people especially very clearly understand when they look at the environment, they get what Karl Marx is saying, that you have this capitalist system that is running away from itself or running away from the people who control it, and it's destroying the environment, and everyone knows it is, but no one can stop it. Um, capitalism is a system that tends to destroy itself. I mean, typically there's there's um, economic crashes every 10 years. Um so 
the crises that we're talking about is not something that for a leftist, it's not something that we hope for. Um, and it's not even something that we can produce, but it is something that we can predict. And the reason why it's important for us to understand it is because um, these crises tend to raise class consciousness. They tend to make people aware of the way they're being exploited by capitalists. And that's the really the best time to talk to workers and to explain these things to them and then tell them that the only way that they can make it better is not to just try and, you know, push the Democrats to the left or something like that. They're not going to do it. They're bought. It's it's not going to happen. And if, and if they did, they'd just get fired and some other person would be bought. It's not, it's not going to happen. So, but if workers get together themselves, if they start to govern themselves, if they start to organize and create their own systems of power, then you can create um, rule by the working class. Um, because the, what we call a democracy in the U.S. is actually a farce. It's a democracy for the capitalists. Um, a real democracy would be a, a democracy of the majority of people who are workers, who don't own the means of production. And it's a working class democracy that we have to build. And that's really the, the – um, that process is the process of creating a revolution. Yeah, and I think that that paired very nicely with like your previous answer where you're saying in these revolutionary situations, as you're calling them, like people are – as very as we clearly see, people are moving, right? We have in, – just in the past couple of years, we've obviously Black Lives Matter – you have the Occupy you know, Wall Street movement and all of these movements. Um, but you, you point out that, you know, there has to be some type of party um, and you, like a principal discipline party to, to organize um, the workers here. Um, and so given that, you know, we have these masses that are, are, are in motion, um, you say that that doesn't mean that necessarily they are revolutionary. So, um, in terms of kind of like this last process and summing this all together, in, in your mind, what is the organization needs to happen for um, these workers to become like revolutionary? So political education is a great example. Um, if, for example, you're organizing uh, white workers and they say, okay, I get it. My boss is my enemy. And then they say, but, you know, honestly – and this is sort of, you know, the stereotype you'll hear sometimes, uh, migrants coming over the border are taking my job. You know, they're threatening my job. The job of a, uh, the, the, the role of a, of a revolutionary, what Lenin called the vanguard party, is to educate workers and say, hey, wait a second. It's not migrants coming in. It's, it's, it's the capitalist class that's pitting you two groups together. Um, if someone says that, like, you know, uh, they have a problem with uh, that. They, they might think that they have to get paid less if women get paid the same amount. Um, or a, a great example: a, a comrade of mine had organized um, a bunch of workers, and they had gotten every single thing that they wanted except for transgender bathrooms. And their boss came back to them and just said, "Well, okay, you've got everything. You've got health care." But we didn't do the transgender bathrooms, and there are only a very small handful of transgender workers. Um, because of the organization that had happened, the organizers were able to go to the workers and say, the bosses are fucking with us right now. They're doing this so that the transgender workers will feel like they are not part of this movement, so that they'll fall off, and so that it'll create disunity. They want to create a division. 
And the workers listened to that argument and they said, we're not taking the contract unless you give us transgender bathrooms. And they got, and they got the bathrooms. They got the bathrooms the very next day. Um, that's the role of educating educating workers that a, that a political party has to do because we're constantly inundated with um, actually trans people are the problem, women are the problem, black people are the problem, migrants are the problem, so on and so on. And it's it and that only benefits the capitalists. And to pull people together, you need that kind of political education. Right. And that aspect of dividing workers, dividing the exploit, the, those that are exploited, you know, we can go as far back as like Bacon's rebellion, you know, the, the, and the, the subsequent decision when, when uh, Nathaniel Bacon uh, and, and other Nathaniel Bacon was not poor, but he organized poor whites indentured servants and also uh, black indentured servants and black slaves to rebel against the power structure in Virginia. Now, it's a little more complicated because they also wanted to kill Native Americans. But the power structure in Virginia saw that class unification, that class unity, and that subsequently created the – they subsequently created the racial hierarchy that developed into the brutal form of chattel slavery that we saw in the southern parts of the colonies and later on the United States. So just – that, that is important to understand that there is always going to be a demand to divide the working class and, and you know – being able to see through that is key. And the second part uh, of what you said uh, when you talk about class education, you know, about the, I think a lot of that is just telling workers how much power they have. You know, like John, John is involved in the union. I, I'm kind of a, a, a you know, I'll, I'll dabble every once in a while, but like, you know, we tried to organize some union activity over the summer and it's like pulling teeth, getting people to realize that they're like, well, I don't want to get in trouble. It's like, you realize that you have the power. If everyone in this job, you know, we're teachers, but any job, if, if all the workers make demands, it's very hard for your boss to stand up to you, for the people who, the employer to stand up to you. And, and you know, we don't work at a for-profit uh, job, but, you know, the, the economy can't function without teachers along with many other jobs. And just you know, you can see like the built-in powerlessness, the feeling of powerless, pa- powerlessness uh, in many people because they're like, well, you know, can't they fire us? If, isn't it illegal to strike? I was like, yeah, because it's a really fucking good tactic. <laughs> it's like, yeah, of course it's illegal. <laughs> they, they don't want you using the thing that's going to help you win. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, da- we're, we're just about done with your article. But, you know, going back to our earlier topic, I know we touched on this before, but, you know, I, as someone that's kind of a proud Marxist Leninist, um, I don't know if you, would you call yourself a communist or, or yeah. you know, I, I know we, you know, we kind of, the terms get kind of confused, socialist, communist, I, you know, I'm still kind of unclear myself as to the distinct, when we get into the nitty gritty, what are the distinctions, but you would call yourself a communist. That's, that's accurate. Yeah. A communist is someone who, um, wants to push society to the point of full communism. So as I said, socialism is when workers, uh, own the means of production. Um, but once you create a society like that, eventually, and you know, it may take decades, it may even take centuries, but you'll eliminate class differences because everyone collectively owns the resources of society. So there isn't an owner class and an, and a, and a worker class. And once you 
once you've eliminated class, there's no reason to have a repressive government. There's no reason to have a state. And that kind of thing eventually withers away. And you have this classless, stateless society. Um, and, and that's sort of the, the end goal. And so we, as we refer to ourselves as communists because we're trying to build the structures that would one day create that, even if we won't live to see it. Yeah, and um, I, I'd like to, you know, we talked about some of the the kind of skepticism people have about communism, socialism, and left-wing movements in general, left-wing governments. Um, are you, I'll skip back past my human rights questions because we kind of covered it, but j- just generally speaking, when you hear about the alleged evils of um, a current enemy of the u.s government i mean typically it's a leftist regime but you know you could include like iran syria these are certainly not left-wing countries but by any stretch of the imagination um you know and but of course we apply this to cuba we apply this to china historically we'd applied to this the ussr currently we'd applied it we apply it to north korea are you skeptical when you hear claims about the alleged evils of these countries i know john and i have talked about this many times but are you skeptical and you know why are you skeptical if you are? Well, so I'll address the skepticism question, but Lenin actually has a way better answer. And he actually says, I'm as a socialist in my country, I have no interest in, in, in promoting, um, in, in propagating the crimes that take place in another country by, by their ruling class. And the reason for that is that, um, it's essentially intrigue between the capitalist ruling classes. So to go back to his example in, um, in world war one, uh, Germany was accused of literally there's newspapers accounts of this, of, of, of boiling babies um, that the soldiers had come into like Belgium and France and they were boiling babies alive and eating them. And it was absurd. Right. But the reason why these um, this propaganda was put out there was to enrage workers in their country and to, and to build up animosities to get people to support the war. And what Lenin is saying is, look, no matter what they're doing, if we uh, signal boost these stories, we're helping them wage war against each other. And ultimately the only people who die in these wars are us, the working class. So um, Lenin wasn't saying that the Kaiser was a good guy he obviously despised the German ruling class, but he wasn't going to signal boost whatever propaganda the Russian government was putting out and vice versa. And so when people refer to countries, sometimes they'll talk about socialist countries like China. Sometimes they'll talk about non-socialist countries like Iran. And it doesn't actually matter if I approve of what their government does. I'm not going to signal boost whatever the CIA or the state department is saying about those countries today so that they can manufacture consent for us to go to war against them. It's just not a good idea. And it's going to result in people, workers in my country dying and workers in their country dying. Um, in terms of, but, but I, I do want to get to the skepticism thing. The, the, the state department and the CIA have absolutely no shame. I mean, in the, Early 90s, there was a story, again, about babies, that when uh, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait, that some of his soldiers went into a hospital and they stole the baby incubators and they left the babies crying on the floor. Um, And they had a young girl, I think she was like 14 years old, testifying before Congress. Nayira. 
Thank you. <laughs> it was a it was a horrible story. And the great thing about being in, in Workers World Party is that I, I know a lot of older comrades who have been communists for decades. And uh, they said to me, uh, they were talking to their na- – one of my comrades said to me, uh, she was talking to her neighbor about how we shouldn't go to war with Iraq. And her neighbor said, but – but the babies in the incubators, how can you defend Iraq? And she says to me, my comrade says to me, yeah, there's nothing you can do uh, when someone says that. There's no way you can talk somebody out of that because it's babies on the floor of a, hospi- a hospital with incubators. The story ends, however, uh, with us finding out that um, that girl, Nazaria, was connected to the Kuwaiti ambassador. The story she was, was told- his, She was his daughter. Yeah, it was a totally manufactured story. It never happened. Um, and and the capitalist press, you know, um, Canadian journalists and I think eventually U.S. journalists in, investigated it and, and found that it wasn't true. But they found that information out after the Gulf War and after, after thousands they of people. 100,000 people. <laughs> exactly. So my point is, is that if it had been true, I wouldn't want us to kill 100,000 people in Iraq. But also, I do not take um, accusations by this government seriously. Right. And it's like, at a certain point, it's like, how many examples do you need? Like, you know, the USS Maine <laughs> exploded. No, it, it was not torpedoed. It, it, was, a, it was an accident because, you know, someone left their cigarette on too close to the, the magazine. <laughs> it's like, no, I, it, no, you it, see, it, all it those things accident. stop. They're all in the past. The, yeah. the CIA but, stopped lying to us, I think, right. last week. Right. That's that's the that's the biggest myth. It's like, you know, they did it back with the Gulf of Tonkin, the lies about uh, that got us into the war in Vietnam. And it's like funny, like liberals will totally admit that. All right. The weapons of mass destruction thing was bullshit. It's like, yeah, but surely Syria did that gas attack. You know, <laughs> never mind the fact that there's a million leaks coming out now from the OPCW that, that the, the records were doctored. And, you know, these people that hate Trump. Trump bombed Syria before they even did an investigation. It's like, why isn't that damning? Like, and then, you know, all these people from the OCD, OPCW are now leaking uh, that, yeah, they doctored their report. It was not it was not that obvious that Assad did the gas attack. It, and, you know, Libya, the, the oh, Gaddafi's handing out vials of Viagra so his men can rape as many people as possible. Or he's going to kill every man, woman and child in Benghazi. None of this was true. None of it was supported by facts. Uh, there had been like 800 people killed in the Libyan uprising, almost all of them armed males who were trying to overthrow the government. Um, it's, seriously, like how much evidence do you need to, that, to, that you should be skeptical about the U.S. government claims about enemy countries? Can uh, I? Yeah, yeah, get I, in there. I want to make a really brief point because your, your podcast sort of addresses imperialism every single week. And I think I'd be doing a really bad job if I didn't point out that imperialism – um, does not happen because the person in office is a bad person and decides to go to war, that they have like a vendetta or a grudge. Imperialism just like is a product of capitalism, and it's something that our country has to do in order to keep our economy going. It's, it's another one of those things just like climate change that is a runaway force. And the reason for that is that um, a company has to constantly expand. So you start off in the domestic market, um, harvest, uh, exploiting natural resources in your country and selling to people in your country. But eventually you'll run out of resources in your country and you'll have to go somewhere else. You'll have to 
uh, draw oil from Iraq. You'll have to get fruits and vegetables from the global south, you know, from from uh, Guatemala. Um, and you'll have to continually expand and expand and expand. And the people in those countries aren't going to just lie down and let you do that. So you need to create a war. And and it goes back to what you were just talking about. You need then to lie because there's absolutely no reason to invade these countries. Right. And, you know, the, and it's not that human rights abuses don't exist. Every government com- commits some variety of abuses. But, you know, when they especially when they try to pin it on communist countries or leftist countries or socialist countries, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's a total obfuscation of the fact that anti-communism, just just look at the Cold War, anti-communism killed millions of people. They killed a million people alone in Indonesia, if not, some people say it's more like three to four million. Uh, you know, look at the, the several genocides of, that the U.S. supported during the Cold War, Guatemala, uh, you know, funding the Contras to kill tens of thousands of Nicaraguans. And it's like, it, they're not serious about it. They, they they don't actually, they're not serious about the concern for human life. They're serious about having this political tool to use against you because they can throw out the fact that uh, some several million people died in the USSR and China without, without any context whatsoever, without several, several million people died in Cambodia without providing you the context that the Khmer Rouge rose to power because of the U S bombing of Cambodia. <laughs> and of course you, you mentioned the, Later on, the U.S. actually supported the Khmer Rouge. Um, there is this phenomenon where people marginally on the left will defend their positions by saying, well, we, you know, we don't want the kind of communism or socialism of the USSR and definitely not the kind that we see in Cuba or Venezuela or Bolivia. And they always point to this idea that they want... They want the kind of socialism that exists in the Nordic countries, like like Denmark, for example, you know, the good socialism as opposed to the bad socialism. Uh, and they, of course, they totally leave out any aspect of colonialism, imperialism, U.S. interference in the, the quote unquote bad socialism of the global south. So I'm wondering, do you have a perspective on on that question? Like, why is it that how do you feel about them? particularly being deferential to Danish quote-unquote socialism as opposed to, you know, the, the socialism we see in the global South? Well, there's certainly an uncomfortable racial aspect to it when all the good socialist countries are predominantly white and all the bad socialist countries are predominantly um, Latinx or Asian. Um, so, I think people do have to question their biases. The second issue is, um, you know, if a country like Cuba or Venezuela is going through hardships, what are the historical situations, uh, the historical circumstances that got to, got them to that point? Had they had their natural resources stolen from other capitalist countries in Western Europe or the United States, um, that, uh, impoverished those countries, um, and, and doesn't that have a lot to do with what they can provide for their people? And the answer, of course, is yes. So that's the first thing. But you also want to then look at the mirror. Um, do countries like Denmark and, and other Nordic countries, did they participate in imperialism that gave them wealth that they stole from other people? And do they still participate in that? Um, Denmark uh, 
participate in the war in Iraq. Um, they uh, submitted. They they helped um, with naval assets, whatever that means, I guess. Um, but and they're also part of this. Uh, they're also part of the capitalist economic system where all those resources are being um, brought onto the global market and capitalists in Western Europe and, and the United States um, then have access to them. Um, so they benefit from the impoverishment of the global South. So it's a little cheeky to say that their socialism is great. It's built on the backs of the suffering of other people. That's not the kind of socialism that a principled um, Marxist-Leninist can can sign off on. Yeah, and un- unfortunately, you'll hear people, you know, from Bernie Sanders to many of his followers repeat that line, like, "Well, what, what we want is what they have in Denmark or or Sweden or, or uh, Norway." But it, the reality is that this is this is an extremely problematic view that igno- is totally ahistorical and ignores so much of the causes of many of the problems, the the problems that they would identify in places like Venezuela, in Vietnam, in China, in Cuba, Bolivia, you know, and the list goes on. So thank you for explaining that. John, I don't know if you had a a, a follow-up. Yeah, no, I think, I think, you know, we're running a little short on time, but I do want to give Mikowski a a chance to, to kind of plug any, um, you know, anything that's going on. I know, you know, if people, who are listening are interested in finding out more, uh, particularly with Workers World, um, you know, where they can go to, to do that. So, you know, where can they go, Mikasi, for, for all of this info? Well, so um, Workers World, we have branches all over the country. And, um, you know, everyone's working on basically on the ground projects. It The idea is um, if there's a workplace in your area, if there's if there's people in motion about the police brutality struggle to get out there and organize them. And that's the kind of thing we're generally doing right now. And, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of get into all that, but if you're the kind of person, especially if you're a socialist um, and you want to, and you want to be a revolutionary socialist, um, you can go to workersworld-party.org slash join. Um, and, uh, and, and you can also just go on our site and just learn more. We have our we have articles that we put out every single day uh, covering all the issues of capitalist depression. So um, yeah, that would be that would be the best place to find out more. And you're doing some current work uh, organizing in the South Bronx. Would you like to promote that a little bit and talk about what you've been doing? Well, I mean, generally speaking, we have been talking to people about their experiences with police brutality um, and and just trying to develop uh, a community response to the situation, Uh, because ultimately the the city council or local government, they're not going to they're not going to defund the cops. I mean, they're not going to do that. And they're definitely not going to abolish the cops. the only way to make any kind of headway is if the masses essentially come out and that takes long-term sustained organization. So we've been talking to people since the George, George Floyd protests um, about that issue. Um, and, but uh, honestly, there are so many, so many areas where people are suffering um, in, in New York city. Our party is doing a lot of work around tenant strikes and things of that nature because it's just there's just one thing after another because our class is under constant attack from the capitalists. Yeah, uh, I think that's uh, that's a really good place to uh, 
to kind of close the conversation. So, you know, definitely go read Mikasi's article. Uh, it, you know, if, if you go on the Workers World site, you can easily find it. it is, it's titled, Is the United States Facing a Revolutionary Situation? And, and, you know, he's got tons of articles on there. I've read most of them. Uh, it's, they're all uh, articles that make you think and kind of start to question the, the status quo in a way that maybe you hadn't before. But uh, as, as far as uh, this article goes, it, it really will make you start thinking like, what needs to be done? How do we need to organize? How is this current situation uh, unique in, in the sense that there's possibilities for actual real change to occur? And, and if you didn't believe that two weeks ago, you should probably believe it after the events on Wednesday when the Capitol was stormed. John, you want to you wanna lead us out here? Sure. Yeah, of course. But again, definitely check out Workers World, um, uh, the website, and also that link that Mikasi shared. But once again, this has been Mikasi Motema. He's a Marxist-Lenist activist um, and writer for Workers World. We want to thank you so much, Mikasi, for joining us on the podcast this evening. Thank you for having me.